Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. Hello and welcome to the Healthy Herb Podcast, a place of information and inspiration for the home herbalist. I'm Bridget Doherty of the Solidago School of Herbalism, coming to you from a bridged island on the coast of Maine. In today's show, I'm talking with Jesse Leeson, a plant lover, environmental educator, and artist. With this podcast, I want you to be empowered in seeking and achieving your own version of optimum health. I want you to be inspired to connect and relate to the common plants that grow all around you. Together, let's make home herbalism be as common in the everyday household as cooking a healthy meal. Now, without further ado, let's have some fun and dig in. Today, I'd like to welcome Jesse Leeson, who is the author of seasonal children's books about the wheel of the year and nature. She is the director and founder of Watershed Public Charter School, a public school that uses the environment and the arts as a tool to connect and deepen student understanding and achievement. Ms. Leeson was previously the director of Friends of Great Kids Farm, a working farm and environmental education campus owned by Baltimore City Public Schools. As a teacher, Leeson spent 15 years as a professor of sculpture, drawing, and fibers. Ms. Leeson is a practicing environmental artist, passionate cook and maker, avid chicken keeper, and dabbler in homesteading. She is a master gardener and certified permaculture designer. She is a mother to two little boys who love nature. Welcome to the pod, Jesse. Thank you. It's so funny to hear someone read your bio too. <laughs> <laughs> well, you you're quite accomplished. You have a lot of uh, great experiences, and I I look forward to uh, hearing more about them in this conversation today. Thank you. Thank you yeah. for having me. Yes, thank you for joining me. So you are a gardener and an educator. Have you always been both, or did one precede the other? Um. Yeah. So I have been, and for most of my, at least my teaching career, I was an arts educator. So for me, um, when I, when I hear that question, I'm thinking about arts as well as education. And I have been really passionate and involved in both gardening and the arts since I was a little kid. They are both things that I came to as a child, um, which is sort of funny because my mother is, um, you know, a self-proclaimed black thumb and never grew anything. But for some reason, it, it really was something I was always really interested in as a little kid. And in fact, I um, I have this book that was this huge inspiration to me. I came to herbalism actually very early in life. 
Um, it's the complete book of herbs by Leslie Brem Bremness, I guess is how you would say it. And it's out of print and no one has it anymore, but I was obsessed with this book. It's just, you know, it's like a list of herbs and their different uses. I was obsessed with it as a child. Um, and it was really a very formative experience. And what's hysterical is my cousin has a, um, she actually has two girls, but one of them is like 11 now. And she walked into um, some family event the other day and she had the same book in her hands, which has been out of print for probably 20 years. So it was really funny that she, uh, she came to the same thing. And then, you know, I've always, I have somehow always known that I am an artist. It's, it's always something that has been a part of my life. Um, and then as I, you know, got older and started to work professionally, the two things were somewhat separate for a while. My, my career as an artist, I would say, no, they were not separate. Gardening and nature has always informed my artwork. But as a teacher, um, I was a, a pretty classical, you know, professor of sculpture and drawing and fibers for many years. And sometimes, obviously, there's some overlap depending on student interest, but it wasn't something that I actively engaged in. And then I, I like to say I had a midlife crisis <laughs> and I learned about permaculture and it somehow brought all of the, th the threads together in my head. And um, since that point, I have very actively combined arts and nature and agriculture and all of these things that have always floated around in my head, but now have a, a way to work all together. Mm. Is there like you see the artistic nature of the permaculture design and just like the planning and how it all the system, how you can design systems so that they work together? Yeah, well, and even more than that, um, I'm really interested in sort of the application of permaculture to education because a lot of, it, you know, it sounds a little fringe at first glance, but a lot of those concepts relate really well to, to, uh, education as well. You know, this idea of like holistically looking at, at everything and how things fit together, which at a high level is, is how education should work and often doesn't work. Mm. Hmm. That's, that's, that's very interesting. I like that. Perm Cause permaculture is definitely more than just design. It's definitely a philosophy and a mindset. Would you right. say? Or? Yes. Yeah, I would say. And I mean, obviously the design part of it appeals to me too. I'm someone who's very visual and, and, and enjoy design just as a pure thing. But I also really like the sort of idea of systems working together in a way that, that is often not happening in modern education. <laughs> so I think there's a really interesting comparison there. Um, I also changed my job at that point. So I went from, I had children, I went from being a full-time professor working like 16 hours every day to, um, uh, you mentioned in my bio, I, I was at Great Kids Farm. So I became the executive director of this, this working farm and agriculture site that was part of Baltimore City Schools. And as you can probably imagine, Baltimore City Schools does not have a lot of environmental education sites. So it was a, it was a really formative experience, um, but it was very much a, a field trip site. You know, kids came out for two hours and they went back to their school where they have absolutely no green space. And through that process, I became really interested in the idea of potentially seeing less students, but having a deeper impact on those students by having a school that was like that all the time, instead of just being a field trip. Mm. And that's when everything really came together, I guess. <laughs> mm -hmm. So what did that transition look like? Now you have um, a public charter school mm -hmm. that, yeah. Tell us a little bit about that transition and how that blossomed. 
Yeah. Well, it was <laughs> like many things in my life. It started off as this sort of crazy half joking idea. Um, and then eventually became very real. <laughs> it's it's a crazy thing to do to open a public charter school. I would not necessarily recommend it. <laughs> um, it's it's a more work than I can even like communicate. But I, I like I said, I, I really got interested in this idea of having a school that did this all the time instead of it just being this like fun thing we do this one time and then we go back to you know learning as usual. So um, I started collecting people who were interested. And I found that there was a really huge interest in this, in this area. So I, I live outside of Baltimore city in the County that surrounds Baltimore city, which is still extremely urban. It's not, it's not a, it's, it's a very similar population, I would say to Baltimore city. However, it's a weird place because there's pockets of extreme affluence and pockets of extreme poverty as many East coast uh, cities can be. So there, there was this need I, I found, you know, there were these very fancy private schools that people were paying an enormous amount of money to go to every year that, that were working with education in a way that was much more appealing to me, but it was just not accessible to most people. And there, you know, there's some great forest schools and things like that for, for younger kids. But if you were sort of middle-class and, and um, had kids in elementary school, there really wasn't an option for you. So you know, the, the deeper I got, the more I realized that there was really a huge interest and need in this. And one day I, I called my friend who had been sort of pushing me to do this and was like, all right, let's do it. <laughs> and it took many years. It took at least uh, three years of pre-planning before we got anywhere near even opening. Um, and then we opened in the 1920 school year which was the first year of COVID, <laughs> which was also very challenging. <laughs> wow. Um, but we have now been open for four years and are really starting to see amazing things happen. So do you incorporate um, farming in that school? Is there some connection to the great kids farm, like what you were doing there with the kids, but on a, on a, like, as you were saying, like a more everyday, longer hours. What does a typical school day look like? Yeah. So the, and I sort of skipped over this, but the, the, the founding idea, the, the reason that we started the school was um, to have a public school that was accessible to anyone, but that really focused on nature and arts integration and hands-on projects and really multidisciplinary work. And a lot of the things that I think people often wish that public education would be, but, but isn't. So um, we have an 11 acre campus, which may not sound like much to someone who lives in Maine, but in, in Baltimore, <laughs> that's enormous. <laughs> and a lot of it is green space. We have a, um, we call it a micro farm where we have chickens and garden beds. We have a, um, a large pollinator garden and we have a, a sort of massive rain garden full of native plants. And we have, I think like six outdoor classroom spaces and we, you know, we've worked with a lot of partners. We worked with the, the National Wildlife Federation and Blue Water Baltimore and all, and all these people to put in some of this infrastructure because it was just, you know, like sort of a gross vacant lot almost. I mean, a large vacant lot, but, you know, it was all grass. There was nothing much there before we got there. So we've really invested heavily in making these demonstration spaces and then each um, grade level has some sort of ownership over a certain space. So our kindergartners take care of the chickens and, and they really do. Um, they feed them every day. They seed their water. They collect the eggs. 
Um, our first grade is in charge of the pollinator garden. So a lot of their lessons revolve around uh, different types of pollinators. They take care of the garden. They, they uh, collect tag and release monarchs in the fall. Um, they do some stuff with native bees later in the year. Our second grade maintains the uh, micro farm space. So they take care of the garden, they weed the garden, they plan the garden, they harvest the garden. Often 90% of what we grow is, is immediately fed to the chickens, though. I'm not going to lie about that. <laughs> chickens are extremely well fed. <laughs> um, and then the, uh, so the third grade is in charge of the stream. So they do a bunch of water testing and stream monitoring. Fourth grade is in charge of the rain garden and they actually help to design and install the rain garden. And then the fifth grade is in charge of an orchard. And this is in, you know, again, in an incredibly urban area where this is like some of the only green space that is around. And a lot of our students have really never interacted with nature before. And mm. it's, it's always, a, it can be a very difficult transition for kids who are not necessarily coming here because they're excited about a nature school, but because they're not happy with their homeschool, which is often the case, but it, you see really amazing transformations in kids as a result of that. Like what? So we, we have a lot of kids that are afraid to go outside. We have a lot of kids that are afraid of bugs. Bugs are a huge trigger for us that are like scream and get upset when they see bugs. And that there's this one little boy who was really like, more afraid of bugs than, than I had ever encountered and was terrified to go outside and was like hiding under things. And in kindergarten, it was this huge problem for him. And then when he got to first grade where they do all this work with, with monarchs and, and bees and all these bugs, he, um, I helped them release the, uh, the butterflies every year. And he was right in front of the crowd screaming, I, I love you. Goodbye to Aww. the monarchs as they were flying away. It was so <laughs> amazing to see the transition that he had been in, in a pretty short time. Mm -hmm. He went from really being terrified to caring very deeply about, about bugs. <laughs> mm -hmm. And that translates to, to nature itself. I'm sure. Yeah. So, so like being at being very unfamiliar space and scary because of that to like really yeah. loving and tending and like learning to care about nature and the earth and other life than human life. Absolutely. It's one of the like biggest predictors of stewardship in adults is these sort of childhood experiences and how they've, they see nature and it's not even just seeing nature. There's this famous study that was done that kids can identify like 300 logos or something like that, like mm -hmm. without any thought, but they can't identify like tree growing next to their house. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. So there's this power, I think, in learning to name things. And particularly, you know, I grew up in a pretty rural area. I lived very near a very large city, but in a rural area. Um, so nature was always a very like safe grounding space for me. And it really isn't for everyone. And I think the first step of of the kind of work that I do is acknowledging that it's not a safe space for everyone. So there's this element of making it into a safe space, but also just like teaching people what that leaf is called or what that bug is called. And suddenly when you know a thing, you care about a thing. And then it's it has this very profound impact on students as they get older. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I could see a, a big, you know, the whole concept of fear of the unknown. And, you know, it, it reminds me of when I was, I spent about a month in Belize and kind of in the bush in a very small village that um, some family members lived in. And I, you know, I was just like, oh, you know, I was like, oh, I'm just going to go take a walk by myself, like out, 
out of the village, like through the pastures and into what they call the bush, which is kind of like the jungle. And everyone was horrified that I would even <laughs> consider doing that. But of course, there are panthers and there's other like right. morning, and snakes and things that I had no concept of. So there was a definite fear of nature there, even though they were like totally enmeshed yeah. in the nature of the place. But I could see it being different, a different type of fear. If you live in a city and you have no experience of bugs or the green of plants. And I know that, you know, there's a lot of fear of plants too, assuming that all plants are poisonous. Don't touch any mm -hmm. plants. Don't taste any plants. Don't right. eat any plants. So, you know, I hear you have a pollinator garden and veggie gardens, but how, what's the relationship of the kids to plants in general? And how do you incorporate plants into the curriculum other than just uh, growing them? Mm -hmm. So, um, the way the school is structured is that each each year there are three big multidisciplinary project-based units for each grade. Um, and they are like really deep dives into different topics. So in second grade, for instance, they do a unit on invasive species and they, our campus is completely overrun like many city lots with every invasive vine that you can possibly think of. So they do this whole unit where they go out and they spend all this time in the woods and they learn how to identify things and spotted, spotted, I, I don't think you have spotted lanternfly yet, but spotted lantern, lanternfly, that's hard to say, sorry, is becoming a big problem here. Um, an emerald ash borer. And so they, they go out and they're looking for all these things and they identify these things and they're looking at native plants and identifying them. They talk a lot about how these different plants can be used and why it's important to protect the native plants and really do take an incredible deep dive into this information. And it's funny because they, you know, I wrote the, the lesson, I, I wrote the whole unit, but I have suddenly have second graders coming up to me telling me things that I don't know about these plants, which was completely amazing. You know, they really like, they became so engaged with it. And on the surface, it doesn't necessarily sound like something an eight-year-old would get excited about, but they really do. And it's, it's because they're outside and they're interacting with it and they're, they're seeing it and they, they have this really different experience of it than sitting in a cl classroom, watching a movie and filling out a worksheet. And so there, that's one example, but there, there's a number of places like that where they're either growing plants or interacting with plants or talking about ways to use plants. Our gym teacher often talks about foraging and what's edible on the on the campus. We have native persimmons and a bunch of of uh, things in addition to the you know the fruit trees that we have planted, service berries, stuff like that. So it is something that we incorporate as much as possible and. Ideally, we would like to actually start trying to use our herbs and produce instead of feeding them all to the chickens, but we're still <laughs> we're still working on that one. <laughs> Baby steps. It's still a full right. cycle, full circle it's, farm. It's so you're very good. exciting to give them <laughs> to the chickens. You know, the, the chickens are a highlight, I think, for a lot of kids on the campus. It's, you know, it's very unusual in this area to have chickens at your school. In fact, we we had to go through a couple of insurance companies before we found one that would allow us to have chickens. Interesting. Hmm. Well, it was funny because the the one got back to me and said that they are going to bite children. And I was like, chickens uh -oh. have teeth. <laughs> <laughs> no, they're not going to bite children. <laughs> they might peck someone, but they're not biting anyone. <laughs> but there's, you know, there's so little knowledge about this that they, it was, you know, like talking to someone who was basically a child, which is, you know, one of the reasons that I do this work in this area. You know, I used to give tours of a great kids farm to, higher ups and muckety mucks from city schools. And this one woman who was very smart, had an advanced degree, 
I was in the barn with her and she was like, okay, but the eggs I get from the grocery store, they're not from chickens. Right. And I laughed because I thought she was kidding, but she was not. (laughs) So it's, it's easy as someone who's immersed in this stuff to forget that it's not common knowledge, but it's not common knowledge. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I sat down with her and we had a whole lesson and we brought out the diagrams and stuff. And she now knows where eggs come from, but she was not a, she was not an unintelligent person. She, she was someone who had lived in a city her whole life and just had never interacted with that. Mm -hmm. And the the other story from that period of time that I I love to tell my coworkers are so sick of hearing the story, but there was a, a child who got off a bus to see the farm and immediately said, Oh my gosh, the sky touches the ground because he had never seen a place without buildings where the sky touches the ground. And I've told that story 5,000 times and it still gives me chills because it's amazing. I have goosebumps. Understand that there are children in this country who do not know that the sky touches the ground. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. My, I'm like, I have, I definitely have goosebumps. That's, that's amazing. Yeah. And that, you know, such one moment in a, in a child's life could have so much, change yeah. in the whole world not only their world but in the f- their future connections with other people and what they may do in the world so yeah that's really and it's really nice and important i think for kids to understand where their food comes from and to have mm-hmm. and not just that it comes from the grocery store you know or you know what are the steps that it takes even if it's processed food to get to your plate so Mm-hmm. That's that's great, really foundational work. And you also incorporate art into the curriculum. Mm-hmm. In what ways do you do yeah, that? And so, do you like do plant do plant art or working with nature and art and the curriculum with the kids? Yes, all of the above. <laughs> um, so it's you know obviously I have this background as an art teacher, and it's something that that is just really important to me. Um, But it's, I I struggle sometimes to articulate this well, but I I feel like artists have almost a different way of thinking that I didn't realize until I was much older. (laughs) And I, as as I have, have come into old age, I have realized that, that we do think about things in a very different creative way. Um, And it's, it's like, it's almost problem solving, you know, if you come to me with a problem, I will offer you like 60 different solutions, half of which are insane and would never work. But I I can pull things like that out of my brain very quickly. And I think a lot of artists can. I think it's something that that is common to artists. Um, there's also a like a, a, a way of constantly like researching things and trying to make connections and pull things together. Um, and it's that almost that informs the way our curriculum is written. And in fact, our art teacher is... is um, one of the people that that works on the curriculum with me and we often will be like having conversations about something and everyone else in the room is looking at us like we're crazy and we're like oh yeah and then this connects to this and this connects to this it's just there's sort of a like way of thinking about it that I'm not doing a fantastic job of articulating that is inherently creative and and that is really important to what we do we also obviously you know we we show a lot of artists we really like to focus on contemporary artists which is very unusual in elementary education and a lot of contemporary art goes you know well beyond sort of landscape painting or what you probably think of when i say i'm an artist 
but into social issues and environmental justice and, and ways of communicating information, which is a way that it becomes really interesting in the elementary classroom because, you know, not every kid can write super well, not every kid can read super well, particularly in an urban area, but art is often providing an avenue for kids to express themselves, particularly kids who struggle to express themselves in, you know, on a test or in a paper or something like that. Mm-hmm. It's also a way to synthesize information. So if you're, you know, you're learning this skill about whatever parts of the plant, which is a, a standard in NGSS, you know, you could like label a diagram that your teacher has given you and you, you're basically copying the words. But if you actually take that further and are making a piece of artwork about it, you're taking the information that you've been given, you're synthesizing it and you're applying it. And that's when we know that real learning actually happens is when you're able to, to take the information you're given and apply it to something else. It's, it's a many levels beyond kind of memorizing a skill for a test. And that is, in my opinion, what is missing from public education in a lot of, a lot of ways, because we're so focused on people remembering information for tests that no one ever actually learns anything. Yeah. I also feel like art is, is the sort of ultimate venue for creative problem solving. And even if you're not interested in art and you're never going to use it again, it teaches you to, to be creative and to serve, to solve problems you know, teaching people think of creativity as this thing like you have or you don't, but it's it's not. It's, it's a skill that has to be learned and it's an important skill, I think. That was random. Yeah, and like <laughs> thinking about the thought process, like very linear thought. I think what, you know, what you're getting at is like there's the, the non-creative yes. kind of linear thought that is so common in education and the artistic thought is very like more spiralic and web based i think yes that's a much better explanation than i gave yes (laughs) and and being able to think spiralically and in web form i think is really important and also serves a lot of children who already think that way and maybe more naturally think that way i know my daughter is very more artistically inclined than she she's seven but then she is at you know reading or math even it's Mm -hmm. it's a huge difference yeah. And a, well, and often ability. if you like read a story and she may not be able to, to write down her thoughts about it, but she can draw it. Mm-hmm. You can often understand more what especially a younger kid understands that way than you can by asking them to write something that's very arduous for them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I so I checked out your website that is that shows your art that you've done. And it's very, very interesting. Um from what I briefly saw, like creating color with natural uh, elements, minerals, and creating these patterns that are on the floor. Maybe you you could obviously talk about it, but more than <laughs> I could, but maybe you could explain it more to the yeah. listeners. As sure. Yeah. So I am primarily an installation artist and I am very much a conceptual artist and um, an installation in artwork is something that is temporary usually it's rather than there being like a sculpture in the room you're sort of using the whole room as part of your artwork so as you mentioned I often do artwork that's that's just sitting on the floor that is temporary and that I sweep up and put into buckets when I'm done (laughs) Um, there's something it's not very saleable but but there is something about that temporariness that I really love and I've made a lot of artwork that also changes over time. So I, I got really into um, 
earth plaster and like cob building. And I made all these walls out of earth plaster that were seeded. So the top layer of bricks were seeded with wildflower seeds so that as they, the whole thing decomposes slowly and goes back into the ground and then it starts to grow. Um, Wow. That's beautiful. I love that. (laughs) They're incredibly difficult to make. Like it's just really heavy manual labor. And I've really, I haven't been doing very much of it lately because it is such intense labor, but I spent a lot of my career. I'm, I'm very much a materialist. I get really interested in a material. I want to know everything that I can possibly know about it. Um, which is how I got into pigment making because I, I um, was making all of these works out of dirt. I was really drawn to dirt and soil and the different colors and different like chemical makeups, which led me to pigment making. And I started making all of my own materials. I make pastels and I make charcoal and I make paint. Um, But I also on the conceptual side of things, how I was thinking about these pieces is I started collecting soil from different people. So when you look at the the titles on my pieces, the, the soil is always identified by the person it came from. So it's, there's a like emotional connection to land and to places and to people that is very interesting to me as well. And I've spent a lot of time researching just like people's relationship with the land and the soil and, you know, like soil is red because there's iron in it. Our blood is, is red because there's iron in it. There's just a lot of really interesting ways to think about that. I've also done a lot of work with plants in it. Um, I, I'm, I uh, apprenticed with a master paper maker when I was <laughs> a teenager and for a long time made paper out of every plant that you could imagine, hmm. particularly like weeds and found plants. I had a whole series of uh, paper made from weeds that I pulled out of the sidewalk. Hmm. Um, but uh, what, what I'm getting at and what I mean by conceptual art is that it's not necessarily just about how it looks, but there's a lot of thought about why you're choosing those materials and what they mean and, and what the what the importance of those things is, um, which is kind of how I do everything is why I'm talking about this. It's how I write curriculum. It's how I garden. I like I, I want to know all the things and understand how they fit together. And I, I have a very like academic side where I'm always thinking about stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The web of how they're all connected again. Yeah. I love a so, web. <laughs> I love this. I love this idea of uh soy, like sense of place and the soil that is that someone like is connecting with the sense of place and then turning that into art. And um, it makes me, you know, there's so much right now being talked about the microbiome, both in our body and in the soil and um, how, you know, the more that we interact with the soil that we live up with, um, we we then incorporate that microbiome, which is yeah. the bacteria and the mycelium and the fungus and all that into our own being and our own body, um, which, which breeds health. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's one of the, one of the microbes that we're missing the most, especially in urban life is soil right. microbes. And it's some of the most the ones that we've always had connection and are very important to our health. And just this idea of, you know, connecting with the earth and the microbiome and where we share how we're all one, I guess it's like, I guess I'm having these like amorphous thoughts that are kind of formulating, but it also makes I know, me but it's about, beautiful. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> makes me think about the importance of the children that you're working with and how 
how ex- mm-hmm. the exposure to the microbiome mm-hmm. um, that they're getting for their own health. Yeah, absolutely. Too. We actually, that is. we have a waiver on our application that says your kid is going to come home muddy and I don't want to hear anything about it. It doesn't say that it's much more polite <laughs> than that because it is, you know, for a lot of parents, that's shocking to have your kid come home covered in mud and they do, and they have an amazing time and they definitely, we definitely help everyone's microbiome, but there is a lot of mud at our school. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Our and that's a whole insane. nother fear factor to get oh, over. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah, mm-hmm. it fear, is. Fear of the dirt. I know it's, it's unfortunate that we've gotten to a place where we're afraid of dirt because it makes us happy. <laughs> yeah. Or even that dirty is a bad word, you know, right. it's like, oh, you're so dirty when it's like, well, the soil is actually like the the flesh of our, the mother earth, you know, right. it's like, it's actually pretty amazing stuff. Right. And it's so alive. It's yeah. funny that you say that because I always, um, I always title, I always use the word dirt in my titles very intentionally because it's regarded as such a negative thing. Mm. Mm-hmm. Then my in the titles of your art. It. Yeah, I, I always intentionally use the word dirt and not soil. My materials list mm-hmm. always says soil, but the title is always dirt because it people react to it. Mm-hmm. Nice. So what are some of your favorite ways that you personally relate to plants? Um, well, I'm a crazy plant lady. <laughs> I, I love plants. I have a lot of them. <laughs> my, uh, my husband is not quite as much a fan as I am, <laughs> but... Um, so I, I, uh, I live on an acre of property, which in, uh, upper new England is again, very tiny, but around here is, is, you know, pretty nice. I used to live on a tiny little postage stamp in the city. So it's, a it's a huge upgrade from where I used to live and I, um, garden a lot. I am constantly gardening. Um, I, I just won a native garden contest in my neighborhood that I'm very excited oh, about. <laughs> tell me more about that. That's interesting. <laughs> Well, so for, for the longest time, and this is also sort of how I relate to plants, I'm very interested in plants that are that are useful, that I can do things with. I don't just grow plants to look pretty necessarily, except when I do sometimes because I'm an artist and I get distracted. But most of the time I choose plants because I, I, I can eat them, I can make something from them, I can make paper from them, I can make some sort of herbal preparation from them. Um, but as I actually, honestly, through the school, as I've gotten more and more involved in native plants and pollinator education, I've, I've become more and more interested in native plants specifically, whether or not they're useful and have really increased. I now have a huge um, native plant garden and I do still favor plants that I can do other things with. Um, I, I, that will probably always be a thing, but, but I've gotten more into just, just plants to support wildlife, which is, is doing something. It's not like that's not doing something. So I, uh, I entered my local neighborhood contest, sort of feeling like a dork and, um, and I won. <laughs> well, that's so great that your neighborhood even has a contest. It is. I know it is great. Well, it's, it's the sort of the greater neighborhood. And I live in a fairly conservative history. I live in a historic district of old houses. Mm-hmm. So everyone has very sort of cookie cutter, boring gardens, except for me and a handful of other people. So I, I, I feel like it made a point a little bit too. <laughs> like I won an award for this mess. Okay. Yeah, right? It's not just messy. There's a plan. <laughs> it's called permaculture. Okay. Yeah, right. Well, you know, I'm very design sensitive. So one of my, my interest in permaculture is I don't just throw things together because they go well together. You know, like I do think about the design and I plan the design and I draw it out. 
Um, but I use plants that are, that are productive and useful and that I can make dye from or, you know, whatever, whatever it is. Um, but I'm also a little bit, you know, most artists are hoarders. I'm a little bit of a plant hoarder. <laughs> <laughs> I also just like to collect plants and I like to propagate plants and I like to graft plants. There's a like puttering aspect of gardening that I will always love. I, I like to just sort of putter around and mess with things. Mm. So do you work with a lot of medicinal plants in your life? Like, would you consider yourself a home herbalist or? Uh, so I'm not a trained herbalist. I would consider myself a, a self, <laughs> self-proclaimed herbalist. And I can yeah. be very, I was afraid to join the Plant Wonder Collective at first because I'm not a trained herbalist, but it's something I've been doing literally since I was, you know, like nine years old. And I, I my hesitancy about that is actually sort of a reflection of <laughs> the modern society in some ways, because I, I have a lot of information. I've read an enormous amount about it, but I, I never would refer to myself as an herbalist, but yes, I grow a ton of herbs. I dry a ton of herbs. I use them for a variety of things. Um, and it is imp- definitely an important part of my life. Yeah. Well, that's what I'm all about is, you know, empowering people to claim that like I am a home yeah. herbalist. I love plants. I work with plants. You don't need a certificate to call yourself an herbalist. You just need to, you know, work with plants and incorporate them into your life and share them with your friends and family. And you're obviously sharing them with your whole community of children too. So (laughs) in various ways. So I think that's, um, that's wonderful. So you mentioned the plant wonder collective. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So, um, the Plant Wonder Collective is a group. Uh, I think I believe it's all women. I don't want to. Uh, yeah, I, I believe it's a group of women who have various relationships with herbs and herbalism. And there's a plant of the month every month, and then everybody shares a project that has that relates to that plant in some way. So a lot there's a lot of herbal preparations and salves and interesting things like that. There's a lot of culinary preparations, and then I have made it my mission. I didn't start off this, but like halfway through the year, I realized that no one was exclusively looking at the sort of arts and crafts application of herbs. So from this point on, I have committed to only making arts and crafts from herbs, which is sometimes really easy and sometimes really hard. <laughs> There's well, dill coming up. I really struggled with dill, <laughs> but I oh, came up with something great. <laughs> what did you end up doing for dill? Oh gosh, Harmony is going to, I wouldn't tell Harmony. <laughs> Oh but, no, it's okay. I'll tell you. It's fine. I'm really excited about it. So I made an anthotype, um, which have you ever made a sun print? Uh, yes. Yeah. Okay. So an anthotype is sort of related to a uh, a sun print. A sun print is technically a cyanotype, which is a chemical emulsion on paper that reacts to the sun and makes the the blue and white print. An anthotype can be made with any kind of plant. It's it's considered a photographic process, but it's not a photographic process like you would you know think of. Um, so you you make you squeeze out either the chlorophyll or the pigment in the plant. You paint it onto paper. You let it dry, and then you do the same thing where you put either a negative or a plant on top of it. You put it in the sun, and the uh, the the plant that isn't blocked by whatever you've put on your paper fades substantially. And then the the bright color is left under your your positive, and then you take it off and you have a photographic print of whatever you you put there. So I made photographic prints of dill with dill. Oh, interesting. <laughs> okay. I feel like I would actually need to see that to fully grasp. I'll send you a it. picture later. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> 
what um well that what other what 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 have some of your your favorite crafts been that you do with plants um let's see so i made i made hibiscus tie-dye for the uh for one of the magazines that was really fun and amazing and came out amazing colors i almost have to like look at my (laughs) feed (laughs) i really thrive on the like challenge of doing something unusual with the plants so i'm always like thinking ahead to what the next one would be Mm -hmm. i made um I made these uh, sun catchers out of ginger that were really, that was actually, I think the first craft I did where I I was going to like, just make something that had ginger in it. And I was like, Oh, this is really boring. And then suddenly it occurred to me, have you seen, I'm sure you've seen those cinnamon ornaments with applesauce that people make around the holidays. I made something like that, but I used ginger instead. And it it Ah. reacted a little bit differently because cinnamon is, is bark. So it, it's really absorbent and ginger is obviously a root. So it's not, so I tweaked it a little, but I got it to make a really similar dough. And I made these sun catchers that smell amazing because they're mm. almost entirely ginger. <laughs> and, and when they warm up in the sun, they release their scent. Correct. Or... Yeah. Oh, nice. I've been, I've been really interested in scent in crafts recently. I mean, I think it sort of herbs lend themselves to it, but mm. all of my projects coming up for December, which is vanilla are about scent. Hmm. Nice. Yeah. It was funny when you first said ginger sun catchers, I was picturing like thinly sliced ginger root dried and then like hung in a window to maybe the light would come through in a, in a different way, which. Yeah. So that kind of sounds fun too. I used to make a lot of um, vegetable papyrus. This is uh, when I can't think of something to do with one of my, (laughs) one of the ones for next year, this is happening, but uh, papyrus is basically just like a, a plant material that's sliced thinly and compressed into itself so that it sticks. So it doesn't, we think of it as being made with papyrus because it's named papyrus, but it can be made really with anything. So I used to make apple papyrus all the time. And then when you put it in the window, it looks amazing. Hmm. And ginger, you would be able to do the same thing with ginger. Next time we have ginger month, it's on. (laughs) There you go. Interesting. So I don't even really know papyrus. I mean, when I think of papyrus, I think of like ancient scrolls. Yeah. So papyrus is also a plant. And I actually made papyrus from papyrus recently. It, It has these thick triangular stems and you slice it into like eighth inch slices. And then you, you lay it over itself and then you compress it and it just, that compression is enough to stick it together and it's not true paper but Mm -hmm. it it functions as paper interesting so you learned how to do that in your when you were delving into paper making with plants yeah i think i taught myself how to do that but it is definitely adjacent to paper making Hmm. it's not true paper making paper makers would point out to you (laughs) (laughs) there's some really beautiful vegetable papyrus artists if you google vegetable papyrus there's some amazing because you can do with anything like carrot paper and Mm, cool. It can be very beautiful. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. It's a whole realm that I was even not even aware of. <laughs> so fun. Yeah. I live for that kind of stuff. Yeah. <laughs> so um, yeah, we mentioned the Plant Wonder Collective, which is on it's a it's a group on Instagram. So for the listeners, um, you can just search Plant Wonder Collective if you're interested in seeing um the plant of the month and what different contributors offer there and then there's also a digital magazine that the group um pulls together and contributors and you mentioned that you did uh at least one contribution for a magazine but is that the magazine's called the botanical anthology 
And so is that something that you've contributed to? This is, we're coming up on the third release, the third seasonal um, publication. Yes. um, I have been a part of all three of them actually, and I have really enjoyed contributing to them. It's another thing, you know, I, I identify as just sort of a, a nature educator Um, so when Harmony first told me about it, I was like, I don't know if I can restrict myself to just plants. I mean, I really like plants, but, (laughs) but it's, again, I, I sort of thrive on that challenge. So I have really enjoyed figuring out ways to, to do interesting projects. A lot of them, a lot of what I've done has been very kid focused and very education focused, but entirely with plants. So in the summer I did a, um, a summer camp kind of thing for summer projects that you could do with your kids while they were home. They were all about herbs. The hibiscus tie dye was one of them. And I had sort of a campy theme going because I mm. call it. So there were also a friendship bracelets with plant beads. And I forget what the third thing was. Um, and then in the fall I did, what did I do? Oh, I made pokeberry candles. Mm. I love pokeberry. I like, I like underutilized weeds Mm-hmm. Is a, has always been a thing I've been drawn to in my artwork. And then um, I'm also in the winter issue coming up. I have actually a couple of articles. Cool. Well, so stay tuned for that. Listeners, that will be released the starting December 5th for the winter edition of the Botanical Anthology. And this, and you know, the Botanical Anthology is seasonal. And now you are also an author of seasonal children's books about the wheel of the year. So it seems to tie in really nicely. Yeah. Um, with that project of yours is, can you tell us uh, some more about those? Yeah. So as you may have, may or may not have determined from this podcast, I am sort of a frenetic person. There's always like 5 trillion things happening in my brain at the same time. So for me, you know, sort of the way I, I harness that energy is by doing all kinds of crazy projects, but also by being in nature. Nature is a really important part of my like routine and how I function. And um, through the years, I also have sort of a strange upbringing. I'm, I'm uh, half, my mother is Catholic and my father is Jewish and they're both atheists. So mm-hmm. I was actually raised as an atheist, which I've realized is actually fairly unusual and I have this sort of academic mindset. So I have a very academic view on religion. Like I'm fascinated by it, but it's never been a big part of my life. Um, and what has been a big part of my life is nature. And I have found that that the cycles of nature are a really grounding thing for me. So I approach it in a very secular way, but, um, but it, it almost fills the role of religion in my life is, is being really in tune with what's happening in nature and the changes in nature and it's it's informed obviously my professional practice as an educator. We you know we do a lot of work with sit spots and going back to the same spot and observing the different changes over the seasons. And so it's something that's really important to me both personally and professionally. And I find there's often not a lot of resources for it. Um, they're often just like really surface, or they're really delving much more into the the kind of religious aspects of it. And I wanted something that was really just like all about nature and the different things that are happening at different times of the year and how you can celebrate and, you know, and enjoy those things. So I started writing them. (laughs) I often, I find myself writing children's resources because they don't exist is Mm. usually my, uh, my motivator for, because I want something and I can't find it. So then I write it. I have a running joke about the like 900 books I'm going to write. (laughs) My my (laughs) list is constantly expanding. (laughs) 
Um, but I, so I started with the seasons. So right now I have the spring equinox and winter solstice done spring. I mean, excuse me, summer solstice is almost done and I just keep not quite finishing it. And then I eventually will do fall. And then hopefully I will do the, uh, the cross quarter days. And then I'd let, well, I won't tell you all my, my 900 book plans, but, um, <laughs> so they're really like deep dives and they, they all are focused on a solstice or an equinox, but they're, they're a hundred plus pages and they just cover a lot of relevant topics for the season. So it's something that you could use as a homeschooler to go to plan like your entire winter's worth of curriculum because there's, there's, um, text and, and projects. So it's, it's almost like a spine. It could be a spine in a homeschool lesson where there's a lot of different subjects that you could dive into depending on student interest. I, I am hopeful that they are also useful to classroom teachers because that's, you know, where I am every day. And a lot of my classroom teachers do use it. You know, we, we have a, a hibernation celebration. I gave a PD on this yesterday, so it's fresh in my mind. <laughs> every winter before we go home for winter break, we spend the week before winter break celebrating hibernation in all of its forms. And then the last day, the kids all wear pajamas and um, have, drink hot cocoa and have a hibernation party. And then they go home for winter break because they're quote unquote hibernating. Um, and we, we delve into like the science of hibernation, but we also talk a lot of about related things and coziness and the fourth graders, for instance, are learning about um, colonial Americans. And so they talk about them surviving over the winter. It becomes this like big curriculum embedded thing where we all talk about different ways to prepare for winter. And I love that kind of stuff. So that was rambling. I'm sorry. Did that answer your question? <laughs> no, I, I, well, first of all, I want to come to your school because that sounds amazing. It's and, really <laughs> <fun>. <laughs> um, yeah, well, I checked out your, your, so you have the, they're di- the books are digital, right? They're digital and print. I've, I've run out of winter in print. Okay. I'm debating whether or not to order more because printing has like quadrupled all of a sudden. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. There, I still have r- physical copies of spring. I go back and forth, you know, the environmentalist in me would like to make them all digital because it wastes so much less paper, but it's so nice to hold a book, you know? Yes, definitely. So I, I waffle on that, <laughs> but yeah. it's so expensive to print a book. <laughs> yes. And there's, they're really, I mean, so you have an Etsy yes. page site that mm-hmm. people could check them out. I mean, they are beautifully illustrated. Do you do the illustrations? I do. I do do the illustrations and I do the majority of the photography as well. I do use some um, stock imagery, but mostly I do the the photography and the illustrations. I love to combine, you maybe saw this in my personal artwork as well. I like really like straight line geometric grids combined with like all over the place watercolor. So that's, that is how I illustrate things where my photographs are like really graphic and hard edged. And then my watercolors are very loosey goosey. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Well, I love how, you know, you have all these different elements of offering educational opportunities and resources to people who want to connect kids, children with the natural world, both in your amazing charter school um, that you founded and also um, in these, in these books. And now was there one on, I saw some pictures of a Turkey or is there one specifically for Thanksgiving? Like Uh, season or? Yeah. It's not Thanksgiving. specifically but it is thanksgiving adjacent i would say okay <laughs> it's um it's actually one of the first ones i did and it grew out of a presentation that i used to give all the time about combining arts and agriculture 
Um, so it, it's it's been a while since I've looked at it in all fairness, but there's information about um, about wild turkeys, just sort of scientific stuff and then getting into cultural associations with turkeys and how they're viewed in, in um, other cultures. They're actually native to South America as well as North America and conservation efforts and how the, the conservation of turkeys has actually saved a number of other species, which is really interesting. And it's been primarily from hunters, you know, people who want to hunt wild turkeys have had a profound impact on conservation of other species, which is sort of fascinating to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's, there's also um, ink making and paper making in that book. And I feel like there's something else I'm forgetting. There's, there's some discussion of harvest festivals. Mm. Um, there's something I'm forgetting, but yeah. So it's, it's Thanksgiving adjacent, I would say. It was not written specifically for Thanksgiving, but would, would be clearly because of the turkey connection has a lot to do with, uh, with uh, Thanksgiving. Yeah, and the, the time of year. Yeah. Um, well, and I just love how there's so many different um, you know, avenues of learning that you offer in those, in those books. So um, if people wanted to check those out, what's, the, what's your Etsy? How could they find them? Yeah. So you can either go directly to my Etsy or you can go to my website, which links to it. And they are both Wineberry Wood Press. So it's wineberrywoodpress.com and it's Wineberry Wood Press on Etsy as well. Okay. So um, I guess one one last major question that I have for you is, um, do you have a like specific herbal remedy or meal that you love to have uh, for the winter season? That's kind of one of your standbys. This was the hardest question. I put three. <laughs> Can I answer three? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> Please. More the merrier. Okay. Uh, I, I can't pick one thing. So my first one was elderberry syrup. I am a devotee of elderberry syrup. I make it basically by the bucket load. <laughs> I grow enormous amounts of elderberries um, to feed my habit for elderberry syrup. My second one is marshmallow hand lotion bars. Um, I have incredibly dry skin. It like cracks and bleeds. And obviously Mm -hmm. I'm someone who's always using my hands. So it's, it's marshmallow root calendula. And um, sometimes I think I put chamomile in too. It's been a while since I've made them. I, I swear by them in the winter. And actually that recipe is on my Instagram somewhere. Cause I did it for uh, the plant wonder collective in January. Okay. And my last one, which is sort of an oddball is Nocino, which is an Italian liqueur made from black walnut husks and you make it in the summer, but you don't drink it until the winter. And so I, it's like my go-to to put a little bit in my tea in the winter. <laughs> oh, is does that what's the cultural or historical significance of that drink? You know, um, you know, I, I don't know as much about it as I ought to. I know it's it's Italian, and I, but that doesn't really make sense because black walnuts are a North American species. <laughs> I wonder mm-hmm. if it started off as not black walnuts and it has transitioned into black walnuts. Oh, but I don't think it would work with with uh, traditional walnuts. That's interesting. Um, it, it feels very medicinal. I don't know if it actually is, but I, I love it. And it has a, it's like, it's one is of those bitter? you love or you hate. It's, it's not particularly, but so I, I mean, I put spices in it as well. Okay. No, I don't find it bitter. Um, but it has, you know, black walnuts have a very particular taste that you sort of love or you hate. Huh. I don't, I've never tasted them. Is it, is it kind of like an aperitif or a digestive yeah. kind of it's, thing? It's a very like Italian style sort of 
heavy liqueur, <laughs> but it's okay. really great in tea. I love it in dandelion, roasted dandelion root tea. Oh, That's my, my winter drink. Yeah. Yum. That yeah, sounds really amazing. Good. So um, how can people, how would you like it people to get in touch with you if they have questions or they, I mean, you, you mentioned the Etsy, the Wineberry Press, but are there any other ways that you would want people to link in or do you offer um, ways for people to, if they want to start something similar in their area, do you have any resources for them? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, I have a million websites for all my various careers. <laughs> the Probably the easiest one is the, the Wineberry Wood Press. There's a contact form. I do do a lot of workshops and speeches about um, nature-based schools and nature-based charter schools. I just presented the National um, Environmental Education Conference about starting charter schools. At some point, I may actually start to offer my own class because I think that was a little cost prohibitive for some people to go to that conference. I'm not, I don't quite have enough time to do that yet, but I actually do now have a class worked out um, to, to get you started on thinking about how to start a school like that. And then you can obviously reach my Etsy. Um, I feel like I'm. there was some part of that question that I forgot. <laughs> uh, that yeah, your charter school has a website too, yes, right? Yes, my charter school has a website. I have an mm-hmm. artist website. The one yeah. I'm most likely to respond to promptly is the, uh, is the Wineberry Wood Press. Mm-hmm. And what's your tag on Instagram? Oh, yeah, Instagram. That's what I forgot. So, yes, <laughs> I'm also very active on Instagram. Is Wineberry Adventure Scouts on Instagram. And we, you know, then you can also find me through the Plant Wonder Collective or the Botanical Anthology because we uh, post every month. So, any of those places. There's also Celebrate Seasonal Shifts, is another posting group um, that is very seasonally focused on nature holidays. Oh, I'll have to check that out. Yeah. Great. Well, thank you. Uh, Jesse Leeson, so much for joining me. This really has been a really inspiring conversation in so many ways. And thank you so much for all that you do for your community and for the children um, whose lives are being changed by what you have created. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I, I really appreciate you having me on. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, it really has. And I I hope the listeners, I hope you have enjoyed this conversation as well. Um, If you did, I'd love for you to rate and review the podcast. You can find me on Instagram, Facebook, and my website, all with the tag Solidago Herb School. And I just want to thank you again, Jesse Leeson, for joining me. Thank you, listeners, for listening. I'm Bridget Doherty, and today with Jesse Leeson. Until next week, be well, let intuition guide you, and have fun with herbs.
Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.